You know, one of the things I love about being a pastor is I get to be a part of some of the best days of people's lives. Like this past year, I think we've had three babies that have been born here in our little church, and it's great. I love being a part of that. I love welcoming these babies and being able to to bless them and encourage these families. Um, I love being a part of weddings. I've had the chance to do a couple of weddings. I've done marriage counseling for two couples in this room, and they're still married. Like, praise God for that. That's, you know, uh, that's working out pretty well. And, uh... I read this article this past week on Tom Rainier. Tom Rainier, who is president of Lifeway Christian uh, uh, Publishing, he did this article where he's, he, he's a former pastor and he's asking, hey, hey, pastors, tell me your weirdest moment that happened in a wedding. And I haven't had that many weird moments yet, but there were some of these moments that I thought were just intriguing, so I thought I would share with you. Okay, one pastor says, the father or the, or the bride and her father brought lightsabers coming down the aisle to music from Star Wars. Neither the pastor nor the groom knew that this was going to happen. So imagine your bride coming down and her and her dad lightsabering all the way down. All right. The uncle of the bride sent a request uh, in since he could not attend the wedding. He asked someone to read 1 John 4.18, which says there is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love casts out fear. Unfortunately, the reader read John 14, 4, 18, which says, For you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. <laughs> Another pastor says, The air conditioning was not working well for this summer wedding in the church, so all the windows were open. As a soloist was singing with a booming operatic voice, a fly went into her mouth. The song ended. This one must have been in Arkansas, right? It says, a pastor was asked to officiate a wedding by talking through an animatronic deer head. That would be quite the wedding. And, and my favorite one, my favorite one, this pastor says, no doubt, I'm in the wedding, I'm up front. And the guy in the sound booth started the wrong music during the wedding. And he started playing, another one bites the dust, another one bites the dust. All right. I just think those are great. So we're going to be in the book of Ruth today, and we're going to look at a wedding. In fact, it's going to be a little bit of a weird wedding, something you may not anticipate to be typical of a wedding ceremony. There's going to be no bride. There's going to be a sandal that is used as a token of that marriage. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth, chapter 4. And uh, as you're turning there, let me just kind of give you a recap. If you haven't been here, or maybe if you've checked out the last couple of weeks, you want to hear where we've been. If you remember, the book of Ruth opens up in the city of Bethlehem, and there's a, there's a famine in the land. Famines are usually attributed to God's judgment on the people. They've turned away from God, and so God sends a judgment. Uh, God sends a famine to draw the people back to himself. And so there's a famine in the land. And there's a man by the name of Elimelech, and he's got a wife named Naomi, and he's got two kids. And he's looking at the famine and saying, man, there's no money. There's no jobs. There's no food. What are we going to do? So he gets this bright idea. He hears that in Moab, uh, the, the famine has not affected Moab, 50 miles away. So he makes a decision. He says, I'm going to move my family away from God's people. I'm going to move my family away from, from the church and from the places I know and that I should be. And I'm going to move to Moab, which was an evil and a wicked place. Listen, man, this is, this is an example for you. Don't lead your families this way. Don't, don't, don't choose the, the practical side of life over the spiritual side of life. You've got to trust God's provision. Elimelech, he doesn't do that. He says, man, 
I'm going to go to a place that looks like it has greener pastures. So he goes down to Moab, and his sons marry, marry Moabite women. Really bad idea. And things don't go good for them in Moab. In fact, all the men in the family die. Elimelech dies. The two sons die. And so you've got Ruth, who's the mother, and you've got these two daughter-in-laws. And they're, 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 Ruth is in this foreign land. There's no church. There's no other Christians around her. And, and, and she's just in this devastation. This was a male-dominant society. And so not having a man to help provide for the family meant uh, it was going to be dire circumstances for Naomi there in Moab. So she hears Mo- Ruth, excuse me, Naomi, Naomi hears that God's blessing has returned to Bethlehem. God's blessing has returned to God's people. The famine is over. And so she makes a decision and says, I'm going to go back to God's people. I'm going to go back to the church. I'm going to go back to, to Bethlehem, the place I should be. And she tells her daughter-in-laws, hey, hey, you guys, I'm going to go back to where I'm supposed to be. You can stay here and get married and, and seek a secure life because I can't guarantee that for you in Bethlehem. One of the daughter-in-laws, Orpah, says, okay, I'm going to go back. Hopefully I can get married. Hopefully I can provide for myself that way. But Ruth says, no, 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 Naomi, I want to follow you. I want your God to be, to be my God. I want your people to be my people. And this was a, a tremendous step of faith for her because there was no assurance of a place to live. There was no assurance of a job. There was no assurance of food. There was no assurance as a Moabite woman that anybody would want to marry her because she was an outsider. She was a, a Moabite. This was like a low-class person. And so she makes this step, makes this commitment, makes this step of faith and says, no, I'm going to convert to, to God. I'm going to be a believer in God, a follower of God, Naomi, I'm coming with you. So they arrive in Bethlehem. They're, they're, they're broke. They've got no job. They've got no man to provide for them. And so Ruth makes a decision and says, hey, Naomi, I'm going to go glean in a field. Now this was, gleaning was the modern, or excuse me, the Israelite welfare system. It was, uh, if you owned a land, if you owned a property, a farm, you had to leave the corners and the outside of the, the field unharvested. So that way, People who were poor, people who were widows, people who were outsiders, they could come in and glean. They could take whatever's left, and that was how they could provide for themselves. And so Ruth just happens to go out to glean, and she just happens to glean in the field of a man by the name of Boaz. And Boaz comes out to his field that day and notices this young woman, and he asks his foreman, hey, who is that lady? And he says, well, it's Ruth. She's been out here all day. And, and Boaz, he's heard about Ruth. He's heard about the faith that Ruth has, that she would leave Moab and come to Bethlehem and follow her mother-in-law. He's heard about, uh, about the character and that she has decided to, to uh, uh, put her faith in God. And so Boaz makes a decision, says, man, I want to bless her. I want to encourage her. And so not only does he give her permission to glean in his field, but he then invites her to the table. Brings her in and says, hey, you can be one of us. I'm going to accept you. I'm going to, to bless you beyond measure. And so you kind of get the feeling that there's like sparks flying between the two. You kind of get the feeling that, you know, uh, maybe there's love in the air. But unfortunately, there's no progress. They go through the entire rest of the harvest season, uh, six, seven, seven weeks. And there's no advance in their relationship. And you're kind of like, what's going on here? And that's where we got last week. And Dan taught from us, Dan Brown taught from us last week in uh, Ruth chapter 3 about how through Naomi's prodding, Ruth takes a serious risk. She goes and and finds Boaz and and she essentially asks Boaz to ask her to marry him. 
Essentially, she, she said, hey, Boaz, here's a really good idea. You should ask me to be your wife. You should, you should marry me. And so this puts Boaz in a hard spot. Because, man, he's got those feelings for Ruth. He likes her. I mean, he, he, he definitely feels it. He's like, man, I would love to marry you. But you've got to understand, legally, someone else has the first right to marry Ruth. I mean, like Boaz, like he's like the second cousin. And like there's a first cousin who has the first right to marry her. These, these people from like Arkansas or Wiley City, they do that sort of thing. And so he says, hey, I'm the second cousin. There's a first cousin that's got first right to marry you. And so the chapter ended in chapter 3, verse 18. And it says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter settles out. For the man, Boaz, will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Boaz has this invitation. He says, man, I'm going to pursue this. I'm going to figure this out. And he won't rest. He will actively pursue what God is wanting in this situation. He's not lazy. He ultimately understands Ruth and Naomi. They need redemption. They need a redeemer. He says, I'm not going to rest until we can get this situated. And I want to be clear as we've been in this book of of Ruth for the past uh, month or so. I want to be clear about what what we are seeing here. Because Boaz, we need to understand, is a picture of Jesus. Boaz represents Jesus to us. And you and I, we find ourselves in the story through Ruth and Naomi. We need a redeemer. We need redemption. And Jesus is our redeemer. Jesus offers us redemption. And like Boaz, Jesus is not lazy. Jesus is honorable. He is generous. He is good. He is trustworthy. And when he says, I will redeem you, he really is going to do that. So today, chapter 4, Redeeming Ruth. Uh, this is where we're going to pick up. Before we read, though, would you, would you just go ahead and pray with me? God, I want to thank you for the opportunity to open up your word today. That, God, you would speak to us. God, thank you for this book that we can see what it looks like to uh, see redemption in in life. God, we thank you that you are a God who redeems. That, God, you have a desire to redeem every one of us in here today. And, God, there are situations and there are lives and there are circumstances in this room that, God, need redemption. And so, God, we pray for your hand to be on those today. God, we pray that you would do your good work here today, God. We pray that you help us to hear your word being taught today. We'd understand that this isn't uh, just coming and hearing a pastor share his opinions, but God, this is you meeting with us here today. So God, I pray that you would speak loudly and clearly. Thank you for this time together, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So it starts out in verse 1, and it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken, he came by. And so Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down. And he turned aside, and he sat down. So Boaz goes to the gate. This is kind of where all the business of the city would happen. And he finds, he finds the potential redeemer. He finds the first cousin. And he says, hey, come here and have a seat with me. Now, something we notice uh, that you may notice is this redeemer, this guy, this first cousin, he's not ever given a name. Now, in the book of Ruth, we've seen that uh, your name is your identity. Names were super important in this book. Who you were uh, what your name was represented who you were. So everybody's got a name. Elimelech's got a name. His two sons, uh, Malon and Kilion, they all have a name. But this dude, this first cousin, this potential redeemer, he has no name. Chances are he was an unrespectable dude. He was not respectable. He was a man of low character. He doesn't fulfill his obligations. 
Because according to scripture, in Leviticus chapter 25, this redeemer had a more, uh, he had a, he had a, spiritual and a legal responsibility to provide care for both Naomi and Ruth. Because it said that if you have someone in your family and they go through a hardship, that as the Redeemer, you are to provide for them. You are to take care of them. And we know Naomi and Ruth, they've been in Bethlehem for at least two months. They've been there through the entire harvest. And everybody knows they're there. Remember in chapter 1, when Naomi and Ruth arrived back to Bethlehem? All the townspeople were checking all over Facebook. Did you hear? Naomi's back. Did you hear? Naomi's back. She's here. And so everybody knows she's back. Everybody except for this guy. This guy hasn't done a thing. Hasn't done anything to reach out to them. To say, hey, how can I help you? Can I assist you in any way? I mean, you can just picture this being, if you had a family member. You had a parent. A grandparent. Maybe, maybe it was even an extended family member. Maybe it was an aunt or an uncle, a cousin. And they were in a spot of destitute, where they're just destitute. They had no money. They had no food. They had no provision. They had no one there to help you. This guy would have been the guy that says, you know, I know about that need, but I'm not going to deal anything with it. I'm just going to let you suffer on your own. And I'm not going to come in and help you out. This is the kind of guy that this dude was. He's a loser. And he doesn't even get a name because of his character. It says in verse 2, and it says, And Boaz took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they sat. So Boaz says, Hey, leaders of the town, I need some, some men to come here and be a part of this legal procedure. And I love it because the men, they know that Boaz is a godly man. They know that he is an honorable man, a man of character. And so when he says, Hey, come together, they say, Okay, we'll come together. We'll come and, and, and listen to what you have for us today. Everybody knew the kind of man that Boaz was. And it says, verse 3, Then Boaz said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Elimelech had this land. And, and to provide for Naomi and Ruth, Naomi realizes, I'm going to have to sell this land, which is a big deal because it was, a, it was a special piece of land. When you were given a piece of land, this is how your family survived from generation to generation to generation. So your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren all survived off this land. So Naomi having to sell the land is a big deal. And so he's saying, you have an opportunity to, to buy the land. He says in verse 4, I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will re- redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is one, no one beside you, you to redeem it. And I come after you. Now, I don't know about you, but I kind of look at this and I'm like, Boaz, you're an idiot. What are you doing? Like, I understand. I understand. Hey, you know, but Boaz, like love is in the air. And like, like this is kind of like the notebook taking place. And you're kind of like, we see the love story happening. And Boaz, we know that you've got feelings for this girl. And the girl has feelings for you. And we want to we see it progress. We want to see the wedding. We want to see you seal the deal and put a ring on it, you know? Like we want to see that happen. And we're like, Boaz, don't talk to this guy. He's a, he's a loser. He doesn't deserve the chance to redeem the property. He doesn't deserve the chance to redeem the family. This is what we need to understand, though, is that character matters. Character matters so much. See, we could define character as the actions that flow out of a complete faith in God. When we have this complete trust in God, when we have that complete faith that God loves us, 
that God is working things out in our lives for his good, then that results in that we can have a confidence in him and we can live the way that he calls us to because we know he loves us. We know that he is working things out for our good, for his glory. And Boaz makes the decision. He wants to marry this girl. He wants this to happen, but he makes the decision that I am going to live right by God. I'm going to do the things that God says to do. I'm not going to cut corners. I'm not going to take the easy road. Boaz says, I'm not going to, I'm not going to uh, say, let's forget it. Let's just move in together. He says, no, I'm going to live right by God. I'm going to honor God. I'm going to honor Ruth and I'm going to do things God's way. And I'm going to trust that God will provide a way. I read a biography here the last couple of weeks on the life of Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was, was a great missionary in the 1800s, uh, went in and founded the, the Inland China Mission and reached, reached thousands of, of Chinese people for Jesus. This is what he did in, in his ministry. And his story, his biography goes that while he's in China, he meets a, a young lady by the name of Marie. And Marie worked at a, a girl's home there in China. And he fell in love with Marie. And he says, man, this girl, she's the one I want to marry. And Marie has these feelings for Hudson as well. But there was a problem is because, because uh, uh, Marie was in, uh, in China and she didn't have a mom and dad. There was the school teacher, the head person at that, at that school. She was in charge for Marie. And she looked at Hudson Taylor and said, no, no, this guy's a loser. This guy, he's not going to amount to anything. He's not a very good guy. He doesn't have a very good character. He's not a very good missionary. He's never going to become anything of himself. And so he for, she forbids that relationship from continuing. And I kind of look at this scenario and I kind of think about our day and age. Like in our day and age, like character doesn't really matter. I mean, character is not that big of a deal. We think about, I think about that song that's on our radio called, Why You Gotta Be So Rude. Anybody know that song? Where the guy goes to the girl's dad and says, hey, I want to marry your daughter. And he says, no. And he says, why are you going to be so rude? I'm going to marry her anyway. Like that's how our generation would live. Because we don't, character isn't that big of a deal. And so I was so intrigued because Hudson Taylor says, you know what? This lady's in charge. And if she says no, then I'm going to respect and I'm going to honor that. Even though I don't agree with it. And I'm going to trust that if this is what God really wants, then God will work things out. And he puts his faith that God will create the opportunity for him and Marie to be together. And he waits and he waits for, for a year, for two years. And finally, God orchestrates it where him and Marie can come back together and confess their love for another. And Hudson has one more hurdle he has to do. He's going to write a letter to, to Marie's uncle way back in England to say, hey, 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 can I marry your niece? And he has to wait a couple months for the letter to come back. Finally, the letter comes back. Yes, I've looked at you. You're not a loser. You're a great missionary who's got great potential and God's got great things in store for you. And so, yes, I give you permission to marry my niece. And this is, this is what it looks like. See, when we have godly character, it flows out of a confidence in who God is. A confidence that God is working things out in our life for our good and for his glory. And when we have that kind of confidence in God, then we can do right by the way that God says. Because we understand it's not contingent on whatever obstacle is in front of us. That we have a God who is working things out. Who will bring redemption. Who will bring his glory. Who will bring success in the scenario that we're dealing with. Man, I pray this is something that we would all experience. That we would be men and women of godly character. 
that we'd have such confidence in who God is that we would do the right thing even in the face of obstacles and opposition. So here's Boaz. He lays this all out in front of this potential redeemer. He says, here's the deal. Here's the land. You have the opportunity to purchase the land. And before me and all these leaders, redeemer, what are you going to do? At the end of verse 4, the redeemer says, I will redeem it. He says, okay, I'll buy the property. And you've got to put yourself in Boaz's situation. You've got to imagine what's going through his mind. I mean, I can put myself in that situation and say, okay, God, I mean, I I followed you. I I trusted you. I I had good character. I did what was right. I did the things I was supposed to do. I let this guy have the first chance. And now they're going to take what I thought was mine. They're going to take what I felt like, God, you had prepared for me. I mean, anybody connect with how Boaz would have been feeling in this moment? Like, have you ever thought, you know, I just, I just, God, I just want this. I just, I just want this opportunity. God, I just, I just, I just want this relationship. God, I just, I just, I just want this job. God, I just want children. God, I just want these things. And, and yet, despite the, the desires that God has put in your heart, it seems like those things don't come to fruition. It seems like they're always just out of reach. This is where you know, as a young person, you practice so hard. You practice as hard as everybody else. It seems like you can't make the break and get on the team. This is where you, you work diligently at your studies. You just can't seem to make the grades happen. This is where you, you work and you've been faithful and you've worked hard, but you can't seem to get the job. You've been faithful and you've, and you've proven yourself, but somebody else gets a recognition that you feel like you deserve. And we would be in that situation, we would be easily become bitter. Easily become angry with God. God, how dare you? God, I've done everything you've asked me to do. I've done things the right way, God. Now it's not working out the way it's supposed to. God, what are you doing? And we become angry and bitter. And Boaz could have been in that place. But Boaz has decided, I'm going to surrender to the will of God, and I'm going to trust who God is. And he knows, hey, the key here is that I be faithful. The key here is that I be faithful. Listen, if your dreams and your aspirations and something you thought was God's will for you, God's plan for you, and you look at all that and you say, man, this is, seems like the way that God has set it up. But it seems like there's obstacles. There's opposition just in front of you that prevents you from, from taking what you feel like God has prepared for you. Listen, don't lose heart. Don't, don't, don't lose your trust in God. Keep that faith. Keep that trust in who God is and that fact that he loves you and that he is working things out. Because you know what obstacles are? Obstacles are an opportunity for for God to to redeem you. Obstacles are the way that God says, hey, hey, I'm going to redeem this and I'm going to get the credit for this. Because I want it to be clear that you're getting this not because you've earned it, but because of my grace over you. And this is where we have to understand this is how God works. That when you have these obstacles and these things that seem so unsurmountable and we don't understand them, this is waiting for God to come in and redeem it for you, to bring redemption to your scenario. This is where we as Christians have to learn to flex our muscles of faith, where we say things aren't going the way I expect them to, but God, I'm still going to keep my eyes on you. 
God, I'm still going to live for you. I'm still going to live with a godly character. I'm still going to live right by you. And I'm going to trust that you are working things out for my good and for your glory. So here's what happens with Boaz. Boaz says, okay, dude, you want to redeem the land? That's fine, but you need to understand all that this entails. And so he says in verse 5, Boaz said, The day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. He says, look, dude, here's the deal. You want to buy the house. You want to buy the property. That's great. But you need to understand that when you buy this property, there's a bitter old mother-in-law, an old lady who lives in the basement, and you inherit her too. And she's bitter, and she's old, and she's whatever, you inherit her too, okay? And not only, not only do you inherit the bitter old mother-in-law, but you have to marry Ruth the Moabite. Notice that Boaz calls her Ruth the Moabite. He doesn't call her Ruth the hard worker. He doesn't call her Ruth the daughter who's been so faithful to, to Naomi. He says, no, she's Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the outcast. Ruth the girl with all the baggage. Ruth the low class. Ruth, the girl who will hurt your reputation. He says, you have to marry her. And not only do you have to marry her, but what do you think about kids? Because you have to have kids with her. And in fact, those kids carry her name. And so in fact, you might go and you might redeem the land. You might redeem the family. You might buy the property, but eventually that property is going to go to those kids. They're going to lose the land anyways, dude. Here's the deal. You get the land, but you also get the bitter old mother-in-law, and you get Ruth the Moabite and her kids. Verse 6, the Redeemer said this. He said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. At first, he says, I will. I will redeem it. And now he says, I can't. But you see, when he says, I can't, what he really means is, I won't. Sure, he said, I can't. But what he really means is, I won't. And many of us are guilty of saying this same thing. Like we say, I can't do this right now, God. I can't obey. I can't trust. I can't live right by you. But what we're really saying is, I won't. I've made a choice not to. Why won't he redeem her? His excuse, verse 6, was, lest I impair my own inheritance. He says, I can't redeem her because this will affect my bottom line. This will affect my life. This will affect my budget. This will affect my 401k. This will affect my, uh, my family. And I don't want to mess that up. I don't want to bring turmoil into my family. So I'm not going to follow my responsibility and redeem this. And Boaz says, I will. This man says, I won't. His issue? I mean, he was fine with just, it's just the property. I'm fine with that because that benefits me. I'll, I'll take the benefit of the property. I mean, I can make a profit off the property. But then you start throwing in Ruth and, and then you got the kids that come. They carry her name. They carry the name of the family. And that's when he says, I won't. See, his problem was he didn't want her name. His problem was he didn't, he didn't want the name of Elimelech. He wanted his name to be first. 
He wanted to be focused about my own inheritance, my own issues. It was all about him. He's saying, sure, I'm supposed to redeem her, but what about me? What about what, about, what, about what I want? What about, what about my bottom line? See, most of us, this is how we live. We live for our name. As long as our name is going to benefit, hey, we'll do whatever we need to. But the moment that we begin to have to sacrifice, we begin to have to have things taken away from us, man, that's when it gets difficult. We live like life is all about us. But when we understand what God has done for us, we understand what the gospel says, we realize it's not about me. It's just not about me. The, 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 we have a purpose and we have a design from God, not for our own purposes, not to make our lives better, but for his purposes. And Boaz, he becomes this picture of Jesus. And he says, you know what? It's not about me. It's about what God is doing. It's about the fact that God is a God of redemption. And I get to be a part of his story of redeeming Ruth and Naomi. So here at Restoration Church, we've got these t-shirts we've put together. And uh, maybe you've seen them. Uh, If you want one of these, my wife has a stack of them. We've got the pretty purple ones for the ladies. It's not about me. And we've got the the handsome blue ones for the gentlemen. Same thing. It's not about me. Because we want to teach, we want to embrace this idea that it's not about me. Like we go to church, and the reason we go to a specific church is we feel like, oh, I want a church that's going to benefit me. I want a church that, that, that will serve me. Listen, church, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about what God wants to do. It's about God's mission. We think life Life is all about me. And I'll, and I'll be in whatever scenario is going to make my life better. Listen, life is not about you. It's not. You and I are, are small pawns and this big picture of what God is trying to do. And as soon as we learn and understand this, as soon as we learn, it's not about my name. It's first and foremost on the name and on the person of Jesus Christ. And guess what? When we can learn to embrace that, to be first and foremost about Jesus, guess what? God takes care of the rest. God takes care of all these other things. And this man, this redeemer, this first cousin says, it's got to be about me. And Boaz says, no, it's not about me. I will. And you and I, we have that same choice. Are you going to be about your own name? Or are you going to be about God's name? Let me just say, if ever in my life, if it becomes more about me than about God, I'm in trouble. And ever in the life of Restoration Church, if it becomes more about Restoration Church and less about God's name, then we should just shut the doors. Because it's all about Him. That's why we exist. That's why we are here. It's not about us. And Boaz says, I want God to be glorified. So I will step in. I will commit. I will sacrifice. So I can be a part of God's redemption story and the life of Naomi and Ruth. And if you and I, we start thinking about the people around us. And of course, we say, well, we always think about the people around us. No, if we intentionally really consider the people around us, the people that God has placed in and around you. See, when we begin to live out this principle, it's not about me, and understand what the gospel says, then we begin to prioritize the lives of other people. 
This is when we begin to prioritize other people's desires. We begin to prioritize God's desires in our lives. And we live in this little sphere of influence in the people around us, and we use it. We use that influence for God's good. And when we do this, our hearts begin to change. We become a little bit more like Jesus. And it's this process that we are sanctified and made new because we aren't living for our own desires. We are putting God's desires and other people's desires first and foremost. And we become more like Jesus. We become sacrificial. We become God-focused. We become others-focused. And our lives begin to change. And Boaz, he's the example of this. You and I have to be willing to live differently. To to live with a focus on others. To restore and redeem others around us. And to seek their benefit instead of our own. That's why we say it's not about me. It's not about us. Story continues in verse 7. It says, now this was a custom in foreign times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was a matter of testing in Israel. So when the redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. You know what that just was? That was a wedding. That right there was a wedding. There's no bride. There's no cake. There's no, there's no ring. There's no, just a sandal and a handshake. And that right there was the wedding. Boaz, in front of all these men, is saying, I'm making a commitment. I'm making a covenant. A covenant to provide. A covenant to redeem. He says, I will. The other man says, I won't. And Boaz says, I will. And notice, notice, as he's in that moment of saying, I will, what does Ruth do? Like, you don't even see Ruth in this chapter. There's no Ruth present. And this is, this is, this is, this is a way that, that God works. Like, like, like Boaz says, I, I got this. I will redeem you, Ruth. I will sacrifice for you. And this is what Jesus does for us. He says, I will redeem you. And you and I, we don't bring anything to the table. Like, it's not like we got to walk down the aisle. It's not like we've got to make ourselves look good. Jesus on his own says, I will redeem you. I will do this for you. Just like Boaz says, I will. And he redeems her at that moment. And the text closes with a blessing from the elders standing around. It says in verse 11, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, who built, who together built up the house of Israel. Well, why do, why do they mention the house of Rachel and Leah? I mean, what's this about? If you and I can think back to biblical history, Rachel and Leah were Jacob's wives. And for whatever reason, they were like Ruth. They were barren. They were unable to have a kids. Remember, Ruth had been married for 10 years to one of Naomi's sons. And she didn't have any children during those 10 years. Okay? And so... Rachel and Leah were in the same situation. They got married to Jacob and they were barren. They couldn't have kids until God finally opened their wombs. And Rachel and Leah gave Jacob eight sons and one daughter. And the elders are praying for Boaz and Ruth and saying, hey, we pray that she will be fruitful and God will open up her womb just like Rachel and Leah and she will give you a bunch of little Boazes running around. Continues and says, 
May you act worthily in Epaphatha uh, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Well, who is this Perez and Tamar and Judah? I mean, why, why, why are they praying this blessing about Perez and Tamar over Boaz and Ruth? Because the temptation is, sometimes when we step into a place like, like a church, or we begin to consider Christianity, we think, you know, maybe, maybe church isn't for me. Like, maybe this place isn't for me. Because I, I'm not a very good person. Like, I've got my baggage. I've got my issues I bring to the table. And it's, it's tempting for us to step into a, a church, step into a group of other Christians, and begin to think, man, everybody here is probably really good. Like everybody at Restoration Church probably has like a perfect credit score and they're really nice people. And, and it's very easy for us to think things like that about other Christians. But listen, here's the secret about Restoration Church. We're not that great of people. We're, we're not. Like we're just, we're not. And, and, and Christians, this is what Christians are. Christians are just as messed up as the next person. The thing is with a Christian, they recognize it. And they recognize their need for Jesus. That's the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian. We're all messed up. We just recognize we have a need for Jesus. And we've cried out to him and said, Jesus, be our redeemer. Bring us redemption. So Tamar and Judah, man, they, they've got one of the most messed up stories in the entire Bible. Judah had a son. And a son decides to marry Tamar. Great story. Well, then the son dies. And so Tamar is supposed to marry the next son of Judah. But Judah says, no, you're done. I'm not going to let you. And so Tamar, she says, well, that's the way it's supposed to happen. That's what, that's what God says. And, and Judah says, nope, not going to happen. So what Tamar does is she dresses up like a prostitute. And Judah, Judah wasn't a very good guy. And he goes on and says, I'm going to go get a prostitute. And he just so happens to come to Tamar and doesn't recognize her. She becomes pregnant with her father-in-law's son. And they have a son and they name him Perez. Okay. This is one of the most jacked up stories in the Bible. You say, well, why, why do these elders pray this? Why do they mention this? Because our God is a redeemer who can redeem even the mo- most messed up story. Even the most ludicrous story in the Bible. And God can take and God can redeem that. And Ruth the Moabite, she's an outcast She's got a bad reputation. She's got all these things going against her. And they're saying, hey, God can redeem that marriage. God can redeem this woman just like he did long ago through Perez, through Tamar and Judah. Let me tell you, let me tell you how the story ends. Okay, the story ends a few generations later. Boaz and Ruth are going to have a couple babies and they're going to have babies. And a couple generations later, David is born. And David is going to become the greatest king, earthly king in Israel's history. He's a good king. And he comes from the bloodline of Boaz and Ruth. He's a good king. He was God's king, but he wasn't God. But a few generations later after that, God did come. And guess whose bloodline God came through? He came through the bloodline of Boaz And a Moabite woman named Ruth. An infidel. A loser. An outcast. A you and a me. See, God is a redeemer. Who can take the most broken, messed up person. 
and make it into something new. He can take the hardest story, the most broken life, and change its course and make it new. Takes an average life and makes it full. This is why Jesus came. This is why he died. And this is why he rose from the grave. To give all of us a story of redemption. To redeem every one of us. And listen, you and I have a choice. Either we will or we won't. Either you will or you won't. Why won't you step into what God has called you to do? Why will you step into what God has called you to do? And maybe if you, maybe it's, maybe, maybe you're caught in the middle. Maybe you're like, yeah, yeah, I, I, I will. It's not that I won't. It is that I will. I just, I just haven't. And if that's you, then maybe today, maybe it's that time that you finally come to that point of surrender and say, man, man, I'm there. I'm ready. Because you and I have a redeemer who loves us graciously and is calling us out. He's at work in our life and in our heart. But we have to surrender to the life of Jesus. And today, today would you cry out, say, God, God, I will. God, I will surrender. Would you pray with me? God, I just thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to us and that you draw us out. God, I pray that you help us to see ourselves in this story. That you help us to see you in this story. That God, you are like Boaz. You are there saying, I will. I will redeem everyone in this room. I will step into that. I will sacrifice my life for them to change their life. To change their eternity. To take what's gone wrong in their lives and in their hearts and to make it right. To redeem them. That is what God has offered to do. And those of us in here, we're like Ruth and Naomi. We've got some baggage. We've got some hardships. We've got some heartache. And God says, hey, I will be your redeemer. The question is, are we going to step in and say, I will? I will surrender to God. I will trust him as my savior. Or are we still going to say, I won't? I won't. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to seek my name first. I'm going to seek the things that I want. God, I pray that you help us to take that step of faith. Say, I will. I will trust Jesus as my savior. I will step into the places that he's called me to. I will do the things that God wants in my life. I will trust him that he loves me, that he is working things out in my life for my good, for his glory. And I don't understand where things are. I don't understand how things are going. And I've got these obstacles. I've got these things in front of me and they become such burdens. And I don't understand what God is doing, but I'm going to keep my eyes on him and trust that he is working things out in my life. And I'm going to live with that godly character. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to live right by God. Even though things around me are hard, I'm going to keep my eyes on you and know that you are a God of redemption and you are working the story of redemption in my life. God, I pray that you help us to live that way. That we would look at the people around us and realize it's not about me. 
that we have the opportunity to be like Boaz to help be a part of God's redemption story in the lives of other people right here at Restoration Church in our neighborhood in our community pray that you help us to have those kind of eyes to see the people around us to seek their welfare to bless them just as God you have blessed us we have the opportunity right now to respond to God's word I just encourage you just to deal with God however you need to spend some time in prayer calling out to him saying God I will God I know what you want for me and I will I will today maybe spend some time the worship team leads us, leads us in a couple of songs and just praise God for who he is praise God for the redemption in your life the story that he is writing God we love you and praise you thank you for being our redeemer Pray that you would meet with us now as we respond to your word, Jesus, in your holy and precious name.